0: Two, three. Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds.
1: Good health is one of the things that I'd like to think at least we value as most important in our lives, because without health, what do we have? Do we even have life? Yeah. I don't That's know. That's a good point. Good I point. Think so, even when other tragedies strike, when people experience major catastrophes, they will often remark that at least they have their health. And even when all other things are going well, when catastrophes don't strike, when things are actually going good for a change, being in poor health, and even if that poor health is momentary, with a minor illness can completely throw us off balance, can throw us off of our game and really make us miserable when everything else is going well. But despite our health being so important to us, our relation to an understanding of our health can be pretty limited. I mean, how much, even though I'm a doctor, how much do I know about my health? Fair point. Not much. Well, I mean, what why not
0: know? that kind of doctor? That's what they tell us, right?
1: Not that kind of doctor at all, not the useful kind. No. But for more than people just like me who don't know anything about health, healthcare literacy and patient literacy is a big challenge for most people, if not for everybody. And there can be a lot to understand and keep up with, given that healthcare information continues to change as new things emerge, like pandemics or new discoveries are made about our health. And new products are marketed to improve our health. It seems that every day we're confronted with a story that said that thing you couldn't do in the past, you should do now. Or that thing you're doing now that we thought was good for us, Eh, don't do that anymore. You shouldn't do that. It's bad for you. So the mm-hmm. challenge becomes, how do we communicate healthcare information to help providers, help patients, to help caregivers in their efforts to achieve better healthcare outcomes through improved healthcare literacy?
0: The key is it's not just us. Right. Sure, we're the wrong Not kind of doctors, us. but uh, you know the information is confusing, and that's that's actually one of the, the main challenges, right? So today, to help us untangle this uh, wide web of information and ideas, we'll be chatting with Christy Cool. She's the Global Managing Director of Health and Wellness at the Zeno Group. And what's really interesting is that Christy began her career as an attorney before that she also majored in art history. So we have both the power of law and the power of thinking about aesthetics, helping us actually think about health and healthcare and health literacy in brand new ways. So we'll be discussing how her beginnings as an art history major helped her understand important complexities and nuances of meaning, something that we as social scientists love. And she channels this understanding to think about how people receive messages and information, recognizing that there's an importance of meaning them where they are, with the kind of information they can understand that makes sense, you know, culturally to folks at their time. And as well, her legal background, ironically, perhaps helped understand the need to have clear representation of meaning and the need to communicate the ways that people understand. We I mean, can go figure, you know, I mean, although I think, I, I think I did see a recent report that, uh, all, uh, the majority of lawyers also hate legalese. So it's not just uh, not just the rest of us,
1: you know, then why do they do it? That's a different episode.
0: It definitely a different episode. Yeah. Legal, legal design coming up next. Um, so in this case, though, you know, Christy's perspective and background helped her understand this this need for clear communication, and as well as her concern for people and desire for positive health outcomes has helped her bring both these worlds together, you know, through Xenogroup. So a really, really interesting uh, career pathway. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about her journey into the world of healthcare communication and what she learned in that process. And we'll be exploring how diagnosis is a quite emotional moment in that Uh, Also, ironically, healthcare products are often ones that nobody actually wants to buy. Like, you need to get them because there's usually some health issue. Um, You know, and so with this, then we also talk about the need to stylize communication for different communities, cultures, generations, moments, things like that. And then finally, we're going to dive into the importance of communication training for people who have knowledge and then how to can. I just hit my microphone. Mm -hmm. And finally, Finally, we'll talk about the importance of communication training for people who have knowledge and then how to connect content to an audience's humanity. It's a really great conversation. There's a lot of great uh, weavings and conversational points. So again, if you are thinking about healthcare or you also are coming from a different background, you know, art history, law, something like that, anthropology, sociology, um, we'll find out that there's a really interesting way to make connections across careers that uh, may not seem so obvious right away.
1: so like what's been your best live show that you've gone to so that's a tough question i know but if you're talking about live music it's a tough
2: call i think the best live show that i've been to recently was seeing uh franz ferdinand um playing on a rooftop In New York City with the Brooklyn Bridge in the background. Um, It was really amazing. I I love whenever I've seen Franz Ferdinand, but having uh, the water behind and the atmosphere was really a lot of fun. Um, And it was perfect weather, even though it was summer and hot. It was nice. It was a little later. So my husband and I loved that show.
1: Yeah, it's fun. I, I heard a quote recently. I've been obsessing on this quote, and it was by Sammy Hagar. And he said he was talking about David Lee Roth and he would say he's a great showman, but he's not a great singer. Like he's not even a really a good singer. Mm-hmm. He could never sing my songs, but he's a tremendous showman. And, I, you know, we talk about concerts and live music and things like that. And the best show versus the best musicians, right? Mm-hmm. What makes for a great show? And Adam's a musician. So what makes for a great show in terms of showmanship versus what makes for a great band that you might want to listen on the record or some show some 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 people who sound good on record don't aren't yeah. very good live and that kind of thing. you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, it it's absolutely a thing. And I think uh I'm a more of a Franz Ferdinand fan than my husband. I'll listen to them all the time, you know, just love it. but he actually likes going to the live shows because he's like they're performers too. And conversely, um he loves the struts, and I think they're good. But seeing them live is really fun. They they know how to perform. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely, they're two different skills, but it's nice. I happen to think Franz Ferdinand has both. If so. I
1: say, like, which one's Franz Ferdinand, what does that tell you about me?
2: Well, here's the thing. You, as a professor, should appreciate that this, you know, Scottish band chose to They liked the alliteration, but come on, the Archduke Ferdinand shot right. on June 28th right. starts World War One, um, and they have a song. One of their early songs that was a su- success for them, which is not about the assassination of the Archduke, is called "Take Me Out." Right. So people had a little bit of um, they, they had some fun laughing at like, oh, Franz Ferdinand, you have a song "Take Me Out." Okay, so like they're a which great one, Scottish band.
1: Which was Jethro Tull? And, like none of them. Are <laughs> right. Jethro Tull? There's no one named Jethro Tull in the band, or which one's Leonard Skinner? No, nope. no, no, no. Nope. None, none of Leonard? them are. He was actually the gym teacher. Leonard Skinner was the was their gym teacher in high school. I, I didn't know, know that. About. There we go. There, I've I've done my job today.
0: We yeah. learned some things. Interesting. Uh, you know, so so one thing. I mean, so as a as a totally uh, intentional sequitur, um Thinking about Zeno Group and and through PR and in like integration, like you know what we've just been talking about in terms of music and musicianship as like a technical skill versus showmanship uh, in terms of performance and experience. Um, if we just put this weird question out there, like how when you're thinking about the kind of work that you're doing, um, you know whether across health and wellness or kind of in the general areas of, of storytelling and PR brand experience, how do you think about these two arenas of, of what it is that we're doing technically? maybe methods versus yeah. in relationship to presenting it in an experiential way that get people engaged?
2: Well, I love that question because it gets to the humanity of what we're doing. And I, you know, I'm lucky. I'm lucky because I, I get to work in a health space, which I am absolutely not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. Um, you know, I majored in history and fine arts. I went to law school, but I get to have a small role in impacting people's health and we have to meet people where they are. And so that means when we want action to occur, it's thinking about what am I going to say to them? How am I going to say it? Who's going to say it? Where is it going to be said? And I think that all of those elements are important because so, so often uh, in the health space specifically, people don't want to have to use the product that that you're selling. They they never mm. wanted to join the club that has that means they have to go to the hospital for a problem or that they have to take a medication to solve something. They they didn't say, "Wow, this is a really cool new phone. I want to go buy this," or you know, "Here's this amazing face cream that I want to go buy." And so there can sometimes be almost resentment from some people. There can be um, emotional ups and downs for people. Uh, There can be uh, resistance. Uh, There can be reasons that people won't discuss it with family members that can really vary by culture um, and even by individual. And so we have to think about all of those elements when we're thinking about creating messaging and getting the messaging out there to have an impact on people. Um, Last night, I was uh, listening to one of my colleagues moderate a session about uh, health literacy and how do we achieve it. And it was fascinating listening to the questions. People were talking about um, some of the, the who should deliver messaging. And I think that's very important, but we also do have to think about when is a person going to be able to receive something? And there's a very different experience if, let's say, you just found out that uh, you've just received a diagnosis. Hmm. You're going to be in a different spot in receiving information than if you are further along in the journey or you don't yet have a diagnosis or it's not a life-threatening condition. And so, you know, I think we, we really do have to look at where is that person and how do we meet them or where they are.
1: There's an emerging area um, of sociology of diagnosis um, relating to not just the clinical or the technical delivery, but the identity piece that comes with diagnosis. And I had a colleague um, at another school who did a lot of research on giving good news and bad news, and he was doing it around diagnosis. Mm -hmm. but you know how people give bad news as in the form of a diagnosis and I said to him well diagnosis isn't always bad news sometimes people are just looking for an answer and Mm -hmm. they know something's wrong and I have a daughter who's developmentally disabled and I know people like this who they know something's wrong they don't know what's wrong they just want to know and when they do know now they find they're a member of a community they're a Mm -hmm. member of a group that they can feel like they belong to and they're no longer alone So diagnosis is a very interesting and tricky thing to manage in terms of, as you said, when are we ready to hear it? And then also what are the impacts after we receive it?
2: You know, and I think you said something very important because for some people, diagnosis is welcomed. Because there is that moment of, Oh, good. Now I, I can work on fixing this. What are the next steps? There is a bit of relief, but it is an emotional moment for many people. Um, and so, you know, we have to, we do have to think about what kind of condition is this? Is this what I call a joiner condition or is it not a joiner condition? So, uh, for example, if you have, um, Cancer or a rare disease, those are often joiner conditions. You want to meet others in the community who've been through it, who can discuss um, and to share information that's evolving, share their experiences. If you have uh, say, high cholesterol, you you that's not your identity. You don't feel like I I need to talk with other people who have to take a statin. Um, you know, it's a very different experience. And by the way, the person who has high cholesterol may say, like, eh, don't really care. Meh. I don't know if I have to deal with this yet. Uh, um, and so they're very different experiences and making sure we're thinking about who is the person and where are they coming from is is a key part of creating the right experience for them because they're going to need different information at different spots and they're going to want to receive it differently. Um, we, we love to get very deep into the uh, research and to know our audiences really well. Uh, and uh, we do ongoing research. We, we've just this year released some information on some multicultural research we have done in the United States. And in addition, we do research all the time. And it's really fascinating to look at generations and race and say, what are the things that they value? And where do are they seeing representation? How are they identifying themselves because if we assume that okay uh every gen X woman who is a mother is first going to identify as a mom and that's not the case, then we're going to be speaking with her the wrong way and we're not going to activate because instantly there's going to be like why I'm not your mom. Why are you right. calling me mom? Um mm-hmm. and knowing what are the the community elements and the drivers and values of different audiences
0: is essential. Do you find, like, so for example, the, uh, I think the term you used before was a joiner. And so yes. are these kind of things, are, are they elements that, like again, high cholesterol example of the, like this, that somebody might have, but it, they don't identify, I'm not, I'm not a high cholesteroler is exactly is,
1: uh, <laughs> kind of what that would be. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. What color yeah. ribbon is that? Do we have a <laughs> ribbon for high cholesterol? I think it's just yellow. <laughs> Black. Yeah. Uh, you get a plaque if you do it right now. Yeah. Right. There that you, you go. Ch- that I'm right.
0: um, did, did you find like, so I'm just thinking about like, in terms of the multicultural work that, that you all, all did recently too, that, you know, it's been said, and Gary and I have seen this too in other research as well, that that the ideas of identity are, are expressed much more fluidly with Gen Z in terms of that we can we can kind of change elements of identity more often it seems. And so, and this could be, you know, I mean like the, the broadest example or one of the broad examples that we see very often is, is, um, you know, gender pronouns, um, that we see Gen Z adopting more than we would see boomers, Gen X, um, and millennials, like kind of, it gets more and more mm-hmm. as, as generations get younger. But I'm curious, like the, the joiner example got me thinking about, you know, in, in a multicultural environment too, uh, do you find that elements of identity in terms of capturing them? Like, how do we think about what are some of the salient ones to capture? Is it kind of like, do we start with categories or do we talk with folks and then kind of see what emerges as the dominant categories that are important to folks when it comes to to identity?
2: It's a very important question. And in the multicultural research that we did this year, uh, my colleagues who did the research identified a, a, a group within Gen Z that um, we have coined the term generation self-defined. Mm. There is a large uh, percentage and a growing percentage of Americans in that generation who are multi-ethnic and they are defining themselves in a very different way than other generations. So I, I think as we work in um seeking to achieve health equity and making sure that we are creating an experience that enables people to ask the right questions to do the right uh, right things for the, for their health and to get the information that they want um, and to not have different outcomes uh, based on 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 race it is important for us to look at who's going to be the patient, who's the typical patient in this space and then how do they see themselves and by the way the typical patient can include different things so one thing that that happens often uh, in the u.s is if we have uh someone who is a patient let's say they're um uh maybe a boomer and they were an immigrant and english is their second language they may encounter two things one they will often have uh, their oldest child be the translator for them Mm -hmm. to to speak English. Um, Even if they are able to communicate in English, they want their their older child to be in that position as well because they're a native English speaker. Um, So we have that dynamic going where uh, the healthcare professional is speaking with two people, the the patient, maybe a patient spouse, but also the adult child or young adult child. Um, there also sometimes is a, it, it's not an intentional thing, but there's a, a, a misstep that people think if there isn't health literacy, that maybe the person isn't that smart and, and they can, mm. they also will conflate, uh, general literacy with health literacy. Um, and so it, we have to help people because they're trying to make decisions so quickly. You know, a doctor is seeing so many people or nurses nurse is seeing so many people in a short period of time and, and they're empathetic and they want to help, but we have we have to help in the communications dynamics so that the people going in know what questions to ask, um, and but we're not putting all of the burden on them. And that the healthcare provider knows what their blind spots may be and can think about how... To address questions, you know, I was speaking with a, a colleague, uh, an industry colleague, who is a cancer survivor, and one of his defaults is that he often thinks everybody who has any kind of health issue has the same experience that he he had, which right. is to become so deep in the information, so steeped in it, and is kind of forgetting we have a whole swath of people in the country who need really good health information, who have no desire to get really deep into this, or they actively have received some misinformation and disinformation even, and are embracing that. So, you know, there there, there is a, a big difference in how people are receiving information and what they're ready to receive.
1: It reminds me of a mm. story. I mean, I, I'm on my school's Institutional Review Board and you know, I talk about this in my classes and this idea of informed consent. In order to give consent, you need to be informed. Well, what does that mean, right? Is it even possible? And the, my middle daughter was going in for a surgery and I was with her before she went into the operating room, just before, and the anesthesiologist comes up and says, okay, so um, we wanted to know if you wanted to have her Uh, put under using an epidural or an IV. And I'm like, are you serious right now? You're dropping this on me, right? Mm. We we knew she was having surgery for like, you know, three (laughs) months. And right now you want me to make an informed consent and sign a piece of paper about what I think you should do without knowing anything. And, Mm. you know, it's, it was kind of funny because my wife at the, was working at the time at a place that was a pain care center that was run by a bunch of anesthesiologists. So I said something about, like, you know, give her an IV. Then I went out and said, call, call up one of the doctors. And so we talked to one of the doctors, and one of those doctors said, well, have them do whatever they're most comfortable doing. That was his <laughs> advice. He's like, whatever they're least likely to mess up, just, you know, just have them do that. I was like, okay. You know, so I'm like, really, this is what we're doing right now? Informed consent. So your point of health literacy, like, what does this even mean? Because I don't have a medical degree. I'm not going to get up to speed on all the JAMA literature. And so what position am I to actually make a decision for myself that is in any way, shape, or form considered informed? What's the threshold?
2: It's a great point. And even when we're experiencing things... Uh, it's a, it, that is a tough one. And when you said the epidural, it, it, it reminded me, I, I have two children. Uh, my first was an emergency C-section. He was a massive child, 11 pounds. Uh, and my second one, they said, yeah, and I'm not a large woman. So it was, yeah, I think I was <laughs> for those at home
1: was 11 pounds is very big.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, it's called large for gestational age. Um, hmm. but my second one, they said, well, you have to have a C-section. And as part of informed consent, they said, we will block you from your neck down. You're not going to feel yourself breathe. Don't panic. Look at this monitor (laughs) over here because you will see that you are breathing. And I said, okay, I understand. (laughs) They put the block. A second later, I start yelling, I can't breathe. And they said, well, the fact that you're yelling means you are breathing. Remember when we said, look at that machine. But in that moment, I was terrified. I was about to have Surgery, but I was also very excited. I was about to meet my baby, so right. you know, it was so many emotions. It is hard to have that informed consent, and what is normal and every day for the healthcare provider, even when they're a very empathetic healthcare provider, it's not normal or every day for the the person going through it and the loved ones who are with them.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that seems like such an interesting challenge point, too, right? Because it's it's. I'm reflecting on the, the question of what does informed consent look like? And then the, the challenge point you raised earlier that when we're working with health, healthcare professionals, right, we can see this conflation between um, general literacy with with health literacy. And so even in these ideas, it's, it's kind of this, this point of like, what point, how do we know when, when that, when that has like, what's the threshold for, for being literate in, in a space? Um, and so I'm curious, you know, from the the health literacy research and work that you've done, you know, one of the pieces that stood out as an area that you're looking at was like helping pharma companies communicate better. Mm-hmm. And so this is always interesting too, because typically a pharma company isn't the one giving the diagnosis. They're providing information about medicine Typically, I mean, typically I could be, um, that's, that's thats what my understanding is. So, so sure. Is do you find like, is there, is there a difference in terms of how we're, we're trying to work with pharma companies in terms of explaining products, features, services, versus uh, obviously how and when to talk to your patient about you have high cholesterol? Um, yeah,
2: it's, worse. yeah, it's, it's, it's evolving, you know, in, in the past, um, it, it, there was just there's the learned intermediary, and that's that's the doctor, and the doctor is a god, and so let's make sure the, that that doctor knows everything. Then there was a shift to the idea of the um, consumerization of healthcare, which is really not accurate. I I, I mean there are, hmm. if you're If your insurance company says you're going to get X, you're not going to say, you know what, I have all the time in the world. Let me find out if X is right for me. If your doctor says, yeah, good enough, that's what you're going to do. But And then we need the balance of everybody as part of this. As that was moving and people realized, wow, we have a lot of health disparities in this country. um, There became almost an add-on of health equity. And that that is changing now, and, and that is not an add-on. We don't look at diversity, equity, and inclusion in the health space as something that is, oh, it, it just put some side marketing dollars for that. Whoever your patient population is, is your patient population, and you, and you need to make sure that you're not only talking to um, the the patient population that is maybe white and male. Right. And so we we really focus on looking at the research of how do we communicate with people and who should be communicating. One of the assumptions that happens sometimes because people um, have to uh, do things in a fast way at times is a short-term thinking. So for pharmaceutical companies, it used to be I want to get my drug on the market as quickly as possible because I want to help people. And if the fastest way for me to do that, for medication to get on the market, they have to do what's called a clinical trial. They have to do several of them. And if the fastest way to do clinical trials was to enroll a lot of people in one spot who maybe weren't very diverse and maybe didn't look like what the disease state would look like, but it was fast and you could get the information and get the medication approved, you would get reimbursement. Payers in the U.S. or world would, and then you'd say, "Great, now we can help people." That's shifted, and now being fastest t- to get people into the trial isn't what's going to succeed long term. If you're developing a medication for a disease state, you want the trial to look like the population that is most affected by that. And so, you know, we work with companies on clinical trial recruitment and making sure that the People who are coming into the trial are going to answer the questions we'll see later. And so that means it's going to get on the market in an appropriate way. When um, payers are looking at how much should we pay for this, they'll have the right data to make the informed decision about that. It means when physicians are talking to a patient about a medication, they'll know what side effects to talk about because they'll know, okay, in the population, hey, we might see this. And that becomes very calm then. You know, in the in the COVID example, all of us heard that when you have this the second injection from the first go-round, often people will feel tired or run down the next day. You don't need to worry about that. That's a normal reaction. Also, you don't have to worry if you don't have that. Not everybody does. But here's what you should expect. We knew that because of clinical trials. So if there's something that is going to happen and it is a manageable side effect and we can give the right information to people so that they know what to anticipate, it's less scary and it doesn't create alarm bells, Um so you know, those are some of the, the key things about looking at how we help design the experience from the start, from that evolution mm-hmm. of where does where can this medication start from so that we can get to a spot where we're helping to heal people.
1: One of the things I think is so interesting about healthcare and this design question, it makes me think about plain language movement in in the legal world. Hmm. Is that healthcare is really the intersection of a lot of different institutions. You know, obviously it's health, but it's also legal, right? Because there's legal requirements. There's yes. also policy requirements. As you said, there's business. It's also education, especially if it's a teaching hospital. And so if we think about the quickly recited possible side effects on those commercials, you know, that's not for the audience really. It's for legal right? It's for that there's a policy requirement that you have to say what the side effects might be. And it doesn't matter how fast you say them so that people can't hear them. And so this question of designing for, you know, in the hierarchy, you can't necessarily design for everyone at the same time. So the challenge Mm -hmm. of whose voice is the loudest and first in all of that, you know, let's make it plain language. Well, we can't because legal says X or let's make it slow it down. Well, we can't because it costs this much money for an ad spot. We want to fill it in with this much information, right? So how do you all think about those voices coming together and whose needs are prioritized? Or how do you try to get them aligned in a way so that more people are happy and more people are served?
2: There are legal requirements for communicating about medications. And there are so many parodies on TikTok and right. Instagram reels making fun of the typical drug act, right? Because there's a formula people follow. And I think on the on other sides, when we look at uh, communicating um, and doing digital work, and some of them were integrated marketing, we don't have to be so formulaic one of the things that I find with the the ads where there's the litany of adverse events I think it's really important that people do know what to anticipate but what people don't understand is what does it mean that that these are the most commonly reported side effects they don't really know what that means and it's more legal protection than anything else and I and I and I don't say that to insult our legal colleagues in sure. the pharmaceutical industry this is the dynamic right. However, on the on on other sides of this, when we're talking about um, other areas of integrative marketing, we can be in more of a dialogue. And so sometimes there, you know, any bad thing that happens when you take a medication, you have to report, if which is appropriate because that's how we learn more about things. So for example, if someone passes away and they were on five medications, there will be adverse event reports reported that this person died. About and they were on these five medications because Mm -hmm. they want to see trends and to be able to say, oh, wait a minute, hey, we got to do something. It turns out if people have a respiratory problem and they're on this specific drug, they're at higher risk. We need to change this. But you won't know that if it's not reported. That also can mean that, you know, the part that had nothing to do with the person's death, it also, it's a reported. So then you say, oh, that was in less than, you know, half a percentage of people. Right. Being able to actually engage in conversation and to address the items that will be important and are important means much more than the legal um, requirements. Because if someone is, is wondering about what's this going to be like if I take this, you really want them to understand. And so it is using plain language, but it's also being available to be in a dialogue with them. Um, sometimes people don't know what the percentages mean or they don't know what, uh, what to expect. So we do have to engage in ongoing dialogue and really listen so that we're communicating with people in a way that, that is um, open to them. And we have to do it in a way that's not condescending. Um, many years ago, I was doing some media training of, of a scientist who was brilliant um, and she was kind of having a hard time realizing that she wasn't going to be talking to people who are at the, uh, you know, had a PhD like mm. she had.
0: Right.
2: And I was saying, it's so important that you ha- understand your audience will be smart, but they're not going to have the same educational background. And she kind of didn't get it. So I said, Oh Yeah. Like, you know, footnotes, such and such. And I just started throwing things from law school in. And she was like, wait, what? I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, right, you're a brilliant woman and you're really well educated, but she didn't go to law school. So you don't know those things. And so if I want to talk to you about that, I have to shift what I'm saying. And that helped her understand, okay, all right, I'll be talking to smart, busy people who haven't devoted their life to you know, being a chemist or being a, bio, uh, a biotech scientist. And um, so helping people understand the audience as well is is key.
0: It makes me think like, even in a, another recent conversation we were having on, on this podcast too, that, you know, typically a peer-reviewed journal title of a microbiology article is like the most complex title that you've seen. It has like drug titles and interactions and hormones and, and everything else. And like the titles, you know, it's a paragraph. <laughs> um, and so even these, I think, are really interesting. So it's, it's, I think, a very powerful and important arena also in terms of media training to, to how do we help people that have training in one area be able to translate the thinking concepts, insights in, into another. Uh, and so even this is interesting as well, because I mean, I appreciated your point that As we're even talking, whether it's to, you know, a farmer group or to a doctor's group of how to present information in a way that isn't condescending, right, is is demonstrating a form of empathy that we understand that there's a certain perspective we're going to bring to the table. And while the in-group does have knowledge the other group doesn't have, which is why they're presenting this is how the medicine works, it's not in a I'm better than you way, right? It's not in a a simple I know more than you do, therefore you're dumb. Um, And so it's like even these simple points uh, I think are quite important just to kind of to underline or underscore that Um, you know, media training isn't just about how to say your points succinctly, but it's also about recognizing that the humanity and and the people that you're sharing with, I mean, this is actually echoing what you said up up top. Um, but it kind of came, came back around again when you, when you even noticed, noted this, like how we, how we talk. So, um, I'd be curious to hear even just more about this idea and your thoughts in, in this area of helping when it comes to media training, helping, helping folks, uh, remember, think through the humanity of of, of those who we're sharing with in, in terms of trying to get information passed along.
2: You know, one of the things that um, I think is essential in media training is remembering that you are doing two things. You're talking to the person who's asking the questions, and you're talking to the person who's going to receive their information afterward. And so as we do training for people who be speaking with the media, we have to think about a few things. One, is this going to be edited? Is this going to be written? Is this going to be audio? Is it going to be audio and video? What are the elements? How much time will you have? So that we know all of that and then can create uh, the right environment so that the information is is getting out. Mm. In theater, they always talk about you want to have key information come out three times because people are listening and they may receive it differently or they sort of hear part of it. And to really get a, a message out in theater, you want it to be three times. So you can't just say the same thing all the time if you're talking on the radio or a podcast. or. But there are different ways to say information that it's going to be easier. Now, we have a lot of tools today to be able to rewind and listen to things again. Mm-hmm. And so, but a busy person may not do that. And they might be listening on 1.5 speed because they're really busy and they're like, I got to get all of this stuff. So yeah, um, I I generally listen on Regular speed, but there's one business podcast I have that is uh, I listen to 1.5, and I didn't once, and I was like, "Boy, the music is different this week." No, actually, just the time is different. It's not Alvin Um, and the Chipmunks. No, but I think making sure that we're very clear on what it what is the 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 point of this um, this interview, and what are we trying to to get out of that, and then how can people react to it? You know, is there a way? For people to reach your company, is there a way for people? Are they hmm. going to go on on social media and talk to you? Are they going to go on your website? Is there a number they're going to call? But making sure that you're paying attention to that uh, as well afterward.
1: Hmm. Well, one of the things I'm thinking about that I just kind of struck me. Maybe I'm going too deep. I do have a bachelor's degree in psychology, so perhaps I'm allowed because that should qualify me. But <laughs> I think about you know, you said you have art, his, you know, a fine art and history background. So much of art is about sharing and expressing humanity, right? I mean, I, is that yes. a fair statement to say, right? That I think so. Whether, whether your own personal mm-hmm. humanity or capturing the hum- humanity essence of others, if it's a scene of some kind. And, you know, I I don't know that people would think about the law as being about sharing and expressing humanity, although humans are involved. But mm-hmm. I was just kind of curious how much your affinity for and background in fine arts informs what you're describing here in terms of sharing and expressing humanity for people mm-hmm. through the healthcare institution?
2: It's a huge part part of it. I think that we are able to uh, help save lives, which is really rewarding. And when, when we look at the General life, the, at its most basic, is I want to. I want to be alive, right? And when we have a health crisis, that's at risk. Certainly, a lot of health things are not a crisis, and are not a. Am I am I going to be here? Um, but I, I do think my background of of look, being a history major, which you know, I just am fascinated by history. There's so much to learn from all the things that. We've done wrong some of the things we've done right. Which I is why you like Franz Ferdinand,
1: life. right? It's history. There we go.
2: <laughs> and um, So I love that. And I, and I love studying the humanity and how we express things in art. And then, you know, I went to law school, which is about connecting dots and showing right. how are these things the same and how are these things different? And so I actually think all of that comes together for health equity. How are we all the same and how do we also celebrate the elements where we are different? Um, I, I think that the ability, and I have no artistic ability, by the way. So, you know, I, it's been fun to be able to study things that I don't have in ability. And to look at art and to understand that everyone is going to have a different experience of it is really powerful. And there might be a common emotional experience, but... A different um, different elements of it, and we may associate things differently. And so there and there's also the the in club and the general public getting things. You know, there right. are there are symbols in some art that you might know about if you've studied certain things, but someone else might miss those symbols and still really enjoy or be moved by or be upset by. By the art and so uh, i think looking at that humanity is a is a big part of what we're doing in the science world i mean many of the things that we're talking about when you ask scientists they often feel like i'm very creative i you know i'm creative i'm i'm doing things that will change people's lives and that's creative
0: and i think that that's important because oftentimes the the public image we may have of, of scientists, doctors, you know, is is clinical, for lack of a better adjective, right? Yeah. It's very sterile. Um, and I, re- I really love the both analogous but also literal comparison with art, right? In that we're going to have multiple experiences from the same piece. And yeah, if, if we can incorporate that form of thinking, um, I think there was like actually literally a book that came out a few years ago that was like how art thinking. No, sorry. It's a consulting group that actually that talks about this. So how, how art thinking, I don't, know, I don't know what they call art thinking, maybe it's to take off design thinking or just kind of art education can change the way that we approach uh, these kinds of questions You know, in, in terms of that we understand there's a multiple, multiplicity of experiences. But also I think this creativity side is also really... Um, I'm struck by it because we don't see that in conversations like the celebration of the, the the creative parts of science and of medicine, and they're they're incredibly creative. You're right. I mean, like we're literally yeah. inventing new molecules sometimes, like inventing new cures, new new ways of neural pathway connections. Um, and that's that's an interesting piece. I'm just thinking about in terms of how we recognizing the the diversity of experiences people will have with uh, in in a medical context, uh, and even you know to your point up top that. You know, the slight irony is that people typically in the, in, the, in the medical context are not looking forward to the products that they're getting advertised <laughs> to, to, you yeah. know? Um, but I don't know. I mean, is there something about well, creativity, yeah, that we could pull in there that would help reshape that story of how people think about what science and medicine are doing for themselves and for the world?
2: I think it's really important for two reasons. One is that sometimes people think science is constant and they get mm-hmm. mad if something, wait, you used to advise me right. to... Always eat low fat. And now you're saying that wait, there yeah. are healthy fats. Why are you changing this? Because we've learned more, right? Science mm-hmm. evolves. And that's not anti-science, that's actually pro-science to realize yeah. that it that it evolves. The second reason it's so important is that it has to connect to humanity and to the audience. And when it doesn't, we get into real trouble. And we've seen what happens with eugenics. If we make, if we remove humanity, then we can decide things like, you know what? Certain people shouldn't be able to reproduce. We're going to change that. Certain people just, mm, they're not really people. That's a huge problem. And so to to get past that, we have to think about humanity and create the space for those who are part of the the journey people are going on. If they're a patient, if they're a, a scientist at a pharma company, if they're a lawyer at a pharma company create the space for the humanity to be in there. Um mm. I I say to my non-health colleagues um that there's a lot of crying in what we do but I mean that in a good way. I mean there are mm. times where I'm reading about something that or you know I get to meet someone who's been through something and it's so uh, emotionally moving that you know I I there there are tears and it is it's a powerful it's a powerful thing and to be just such a small part of making sure that people have the right information is is powerful.
1: I just, I just had a very random thought, um, not so random. So you're in Chicago right now as we're recording this. And today is the day that we're recording this that Jerry Springer died. And you think about, um, you know, the idea that some people shouldn't be able to reproduce. And I thought about Jerry Springer dying in his show <laughs> and I'm like, these people on the show, but then, you know, are like, you know, sometimes you're like, who are these people? Who's the baby's daddy who reproduced tooth whom? There's a lot going on, but the thing that really puts the exclamation point on it, if you ever watched his show, especially early on, at the very end, no matter how contentious, outrageous, irrational his show was, he would take a heartfelt moment to try to really connect the humanity of a message that was coming out of his show. And it was like sometimes the most ridiculous thing in the world. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, my God, this this whole thing just happened on your show. And, And he was like, you know friends, let us please remember that. And you're like, even in the most unusual of circumstances, there are points of humanity that we can draw and lessons that we can take that that directs us to who we're supposed to be and who we're trying to be. And even in a show like that, or even a situation where healthcare outcomes are so dire, that's when we need to do it. When things are at their worst or most dire, we need to find our humanity the most.
2: We definitely need to find our humanity the most and to be able to to connect and not to always use everything negative as entertainment. Um, but but I think that there are elements of um, humor that can come into what we're doing in the health space. And I think there are elements of um, of the voyeurism uh, that we, you know, we should skip that part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: Jerry. I mean, it, I don't know if you've ever seen a Jerry Springer when he would do this, but it was just bizarre. But it makes now that I think about it and what you're saying, it makes a lot of sense because if we stay in the disaster and the chaos, then we run the risk of losing who we are and ourselves. And, and in society today, so much we're dealing with so much intentionally constructed chaos that it's easy to lose ourselves and each other in the process. Hmm.
0: And I mean, also just like how Jerry Springer is a really interesting example. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> In terms of you know why, why, and where we, where we uh, do something, I think voyeurism is a is a good like the the good kind of yoke there to think about, where it, it's that um, there's a desire to kind of watch that which we shouldn't, um, and like the medical arena can bring us into these these really challenging spaces. Um, but then also, even even to your point, Christy, that like there can be a lot of crying, but in a good way, whether it's positive tears or, or mm-hmm. um, just emotional expression that needs to happen as what as part of being human, um, it's really interesting too because it's like thinking about how how can we effectively tell those stories um, and use moments like that of vulnerability, we might say, um, in appropriate respectful ways that like help either others connect, other potential patients, customers connect, uh, and or uh, professionals in this space to have a, a level of, uh, I mean, I, I don't know again of like, how do we, how do we, we can determine like, this is a moment in which having that space of humanity is important. Um, and this is what it looks like when it's, when we're doing that. Um, I'm just, I'm just thinking as a, as a person that learns well by well, good, well, good. I don't know which one it is. Learn, learn through examples, um, learn better through examples. Uh, you know, this is, this has me thinking about this too, in terms of um, knowing what's the right kinds of things to show. Um, as examples of stories that we may want to tell of success, uh, you know, kind of showing those moments of humanity.
2: Yeah, and to be able to show uh, where we're similar and where we're not. So I was talking with, um, I, I'm a white woman. I was talking with a black woman who does a lot of um, of, of work in the uh, black American community. And we both come from cultures that would not discuss family um, having health problems and we were talking about how there's this this commonality of like well you don't bring that up that's kind of a whispered thing you don't right we ha- our families had different reasons for it she was talking um very specifically about uh why you you would just kind of hide that and uh, you know I don't want to speak for her on this but but I'll share what we were saying on my end which was that you're so privileged how dare you complain like just don't bring that up mm. you know keep, just come on, your your life is easy. Even when it's hard, it's easy. You, you've mm-hmm. got it made. Move on. So we would both be in situations where we might not know that a family member had something that we should know about to be able to discuss with our doctors going forward. Uh, but there are different reasons why. And so if you wanted to talk to our parents' generation about the importance of sharing medical histories and what it could mean, you would need to do, say different things. Because mm. in one community, it might be saying, it's not complaining. like it Sharing your, your information, sharing your humanity here is helping to serve other generations. That is a good thing. Mm. You know, to others, it might be, this is a really key area for you to be able, you're always taking care of everyone else. And part of taking care of everyone else is sharing what you're going through. And it's not a burden you have to have alone. So you know there there might be differences that the outcome might be the same that there isn't the discussion, but to create the environment and the experience for people to be able to uh, uh, have that space to speak is going to be a bit different. Hmm.
0: Are there are there typical frameworks? So if, if folks are interested in in this idea, like recognizing that there will be difference of content? Mm -hmm. Are there frameworks that would, in terms of putting that in place, are there certain kind of best practices you follow that that you find are most effective for doing that?
2: Absolutely. We we have a really strong uh, strategy team. And while people always say like, we all do strategy, we do, but we've got an incredible strategy team that gets very, very deep into the research. And um, they start with two things. One, looking at how, getting to the insights means first we're looking at what is happening in this in the in the environment and digging down from there and the environment doesn't always mean the general public right it could be mm. uh, it could be a variety of stuff but there's a, a process we we use it's adaptable it's not so rigid that you end up with cookie cutter stuff but we start there at the same time we're we're comparing that to we we um, are constantly doing surveys of people. Um, and measuring their values on 40 different elements. So we're then able to to compare both and be able to help our clients understand how to communicate and how to reach people mm-hmm. and also where to reach them. So there, there's a framework. It's not so rigid that people are getting, you know, the same old, same old, but there is a framework we use to assist clients um, in making sure that, They're not going to make the wrong assumptions, but there really will be informed information as they're they're trying to communicate.
1: One of the challenges I know when you get a bunch of really smart people around and you talk about the people you work with are really, really smart is that ideas can get complex very quickly well at the same time sometimes the best solution might be the simplest solution and the easiest solution so how do you all try to work with your stakeholders your partners and things like that to not so much rein them in but to keep simple things to do simple things that lead to quick successes rather than getting bogged down in the bigger picture things and the complex things that exist but aren't as easily solvable or actionable
2: mm-hmm. yeah i there are were- several things we have to do so that we are not in uh, analysis paralysis or that we're not ever taking action. We have to recognize that small steps do add up. And so there are things that uh, that we can do in the short term that will have an impact. But we also want to make sure as we're building a plan for a client and we're thinking about the year ahead or three years ahead or five years ahead, that we're also measuring as we're going so that we can make adjustments. Um, And sometimes uh, we find that um, an audience is really reacting well to something and it's a different element than we anticipated. So when we were looking at um, a campaign, there was a digital campaign we were working on and we wanted to reach scientists. um, And it was very well received with them. They had had a very different impression of the company beforehand. But we also found that other audiences were looking at it. So it wasn't just the scientists right. who were the target, but others were. And that told us that there was a subset of people who had a hunger for the science. And they weren't people we necessarily thought would have huh. that. So taking actions and um, putting things out either through a pilot or uh, being able to adapt and make some some steps along the way. Um, is key just to make sure that it doesn't always stay in the, the theoretical.
1: Yeah, because you don't want that. Because, like, you know, I, I I say that you know honestly because being in an academic institution, it's interesting to see when you get really smart people around who can have really great ideas that the ideas can start to snowball pretty quickly and get into the weeds. And so there, as like you said, is you know you know analysis paralysis that mm-hmm. nothing ends up happening. And you end up in the same situation, even though you've tried to make progress (laughs) and had multiple meetings over a long period of time, but no action was ever done. Or if the action was ever done, it's so narrow because it's all anybody could agree on that it's such a least common denominator outcome that it doesn't necessarily move the needle all that much.
2: Yeah. And that happens because there are, it's hard to move a big ship. That's yeah. hard, and I'm sorry that uh, you know I'm using metaphors and this are cliches, but but it is important to take steps and to say let's do this. And sometimes one way to do it can be a, a pilot um, program or things that sound less risky to people, and then they see success there and say let's continue to do this. Um, just as you know, for our clients, many people in the past thought of. Um, There that there's like a general population, and then there would be these separate. Oh, that's multicultural, and you know that's kind of a strange term. I mean, we're we're a pretty diverse country uh, and a pretty diverse world. So it's really about reaching the audiences, and that it's not that's not an add on. It's like you said, you want us to reach your population. Awesome, we are, and your population includes. All of these, and that this is how we're right. going to look at it. It's not an add-on or or something different. And then when we have success, it 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 leads companies to say, "Yeah, I I do need to do this." That you're you're right. This is going to have a positive impact on health.
0: Hmm. I think that is that's super interesting, and I, it's it is like one of the challenges that we that we tend to face. Um, but I appreciate the idea that we can recognize like the. The kind of structural challenges that, in terms of how we're putting together both insight capture and uh, and then kind of transformation and sharing, um, and then also of course translating those into best practices. So this will be my last question. Then I'll disappear in a few minutes. But like, um, j- just this idea in terms of you know in in your work, as you think about like what's potentially next or what's if you can talk about this, like what what, what is interested, what's interesting to you all in terms of health literacy for next step projects. Um, that are kind of pulling together some of these threads that we've seen in terms of either where trends in communication are going or or what are some of the big questions that are emerging this year or over the next few years that that are really catching your attention um, that you think we need to give more attention to in terms of how we tell that story and making sure that we're putting that space for for humanity in there.
2: Some of the big things that I'm thinking about uh, in health literacy and health communications in the next uh, few years are um, things like A.I., how does that play in? Um, how does it play in in terms of um, chat versus some of the generative elements? Um, so we're doing a lot of research on that right now. Um, how do we not have a divide um, of people who are in receiving information and those who have already just completely tuned health out, um, which, you know, I think it can be can be an issue going forward. Um, And a third area that I'm really thinking about is the impact of the economy right now with higher interest rates, um, tougher environment for raising capital for biotech companies. Because many of the ideas, there's a lot of failure in developing medications and there should be. Um, People have wild ideas, they try them out, um, the vast majority do not work. However, they lead to some really good th- other things. And so, right. I am thinking about what are we going to learn? What are we going to miss learning? Because it's a tougher mm-hmm. environment to to do these trials. And I don't want us to go back to something I said earlier, which was, uh, I don't. we don't have a lot of capital. We don't have a lot of time. How do I just get this a- uh, approved right away. What's the fastest, easiest way for me to do a clinical trial? So I want to make sure that we are still looking at from the start. We're thinking about the population we seek to serve, and not having a, a false um, finish line of let me just get this approved in the fastest way I can.
0: Right. Super interesting point. Yeah, I think that's important. Like speed, we can't we can't keep getting faster without also getting staying intentional about
1: being human. Uh, also, yes. you
0: know, speaking can yeah. be the enemy of goodness in that in that regard.
1: Just like I have one more thing. There was a really interesting book called um, Loon Shots. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it talks about innovation. And there's a lot of innovation that it refers to in the pharmaceutical space. And that there are instances where an idea for a new drug was completely dismissed because it broke the paradigm of the industry, or as you said, that something didn't work out the first time. So people would dismiss it. And there's a notion in there about beware the false fail that, mm-hmm. you know, not getting wrapped up in it didn't work once. So now it won't work ever. Or we need to stick to what we know. Therefore, we can't try new things because of the risk involved. And what if it does fail? And so in, in your work and talking with clients or or working with these scientists, how much of how much I won't say hand holding, but encouragement or orientation shifting so that they lose the short-term mindset and think about the possibilities, not only thinking long-term, but actually going backwards and what did we try before? Maybe we should try that again.
2: It's it is a mix and it's such a fascinating area because. Uh, you learn a lot from failures, but do you learn the right lessons from failures? That's key, right? So to be able to say, oh, this this is what we learned from there. Here's the insight. Let's move ahead. There's some really cool things happening with um, uh, nonprofits that are doing some sort of uh, venture philanthropy that are investing in some of these um, more out there ideas let's try right. this you know cystic fibrosis Foundation is doing it um the um, the As- Foundation is doing it and it become you know a lot of these become uh their grants but if their success uh it becomes convertible and they they right. make a multiple off of it um and I think that that part is really fascinating there are definitely people who come in and think differently and will say hey, uh, what about trying X or Y um, in this disease state? We have to just think about this differently, but we do also see some that want to do what's tried and true. And and really those who are trying tried and true don't have the great successes. You know, they're not as financially successful. They're not as um, uh, they're not changing the world as much. So um, I'm very lucky. We're, you do a, a great company and we get to choose the clients we work with and we work with some of the most innovative companies in the world and they do want to do things differently you know they want to help achieve health equity they want to uh cure diseases of course they can never say cure you know they right. won't let you say that we don't have cures but that's that's what they want to do they want to change the world and we're here to help them do that
1: well thanks so much i'll let you get back to it
2: okay thank <laughs> thanks for you. taking the time wonderful great to connect
0: We'd like to thank Christy Cool of the Xeno Group for coming on and talking about her work in health literacy and healthcare communication, as well as the general challenges of information design. I think it's one of one of our favorite areas to talk about. You can find out more about her work and Xeno Group in our show notes. And as always, dear listeners, watchers, friends, we always want to hear from you. So some questions that are on our mind as we're stepping out of this episode is how could we improve healthcare literacy in ways that incorporate more types of knowledge, you know more kinds of people in the conversation, uh, you know, how might your hidden degree in art history or maybe anthropology or sociology help understand the complexities and nuances of meaning when it comes to information design and communication? And I think also an important question here is what are your biggest failures, either that you've experienced or that you've seen someone else go through in terms of effective communication? When have we seen a breakdown happen that just didn't quite go right and why did that happen? As always, you can shoot us a message at feedback at experiencexdesign.com or hop on the conversation on our LinkedIn page and or our sub stack.
1: And thank you so much to the listener for listening to Experience by Design as we continue to roll out the content that we hope you enjoy. Having fascinating conversations with interesting people doing really cool stuff, including Christy Cool. See what I did there?
0: <laughs> Swing.
1: Thank you. We love bringing you the content. We love talking to our guests. We love sharing their knowledge with you. And we love learning from the entire process. So we appreciate your time, energy, effort in sharing your life with us. And if you are an experienced design company or professional and you want to increase your profile, no better way than to be unexperienced by design. Shoot us an email, let us know what you want to do with us, and let's talk. We're always interested in forming new partnerships and relationships with people out there who appreciate what we do here for you. And you can always buy us a coffee through our Buy Us a Coffee link on our Experience by Design website to help defray the cost of bringing you this wonderful content. And make sure you share your feedback at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. And with that, everybody, as always, be kind, be well, be healthy, be safe, and be here with us on the next Experience by Design.